Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Tom, it's, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Fair Talk. Tom Flanagan is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. He is the author of numerous books, many of which have won prizes. The book that we'll be discussing today, he co-authored, and the title of that book is Beyond the Indian Act, Restoring Aboriginal Property Rights. Tom, welcome to Fair Talk. Good to be here. I should also say for those people who will be listening to this podcast, this is a bit of an experiment. We're doing this podcast with Tom um, over video in a classroom setting where students from land economics will be participating in the podcast discussion. Tom, just to get the the ball rolling, give us a a bit of a background of property rights on First Nations and the consequences that have motivated your interest in this area. Yeah. Well, I think many of the problems that people point to that First Nations have, low incomes, um, bad housing conditions, uh, various social pathologies, uh, high rates of alcoholism and uh, drug abuse and uh, family breakdown and so on. A lot of these things have uh, have uh, deeper causes in the absence of property rights. Um, just to give an example, today is National Housing Day, and Sean Atlio, the Grand Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, published an editorial in the uh, National Post this morning talking about the sad state of uh, First Nations housing. And um, he says there's a shortage of 85,000 uh, homes uh, for First Nations people on reserves. And uh, he also cites the Statistics Canada figure that 42% of existing housing is in need of repair. Now that's an astonishing figure. Uh, you know, over 40% of housing is in, and, and we're not just talking about a new coat of paint. No one, Statistics Canada talks about needing repair. They're talking about more serious uh, structural features. Well, why is that? Uh, well, surely one of the main reasons is that uh, all the land on Indian reserves is owned uh, by the government. Uh, Indians don't own the land either collectively or individually. They can own a house, but most don't. The houses are mostly provided for them by banned governments. Uh, there's never enough supply of housing, and what there is is not well maintained. In contrast to the uh, uh, larger society where uh, shortage of housing is sometimes an issue, but pretty much a marginal issue. There's maybe 1% of the Canadian population at large that don't have uh, safe, warm housing. Uh, so, you know, you can talk about housing as the problem, but the underlying problem is an absence of property rights, which would enable a housing market to operate. There's housing markets that give us owner-occupied or rental housing in the rest of the country, but that those housing markets don't operate on reserves. So there's one example of how uh, standard of living is impacted in a, you know, in a very real way by an absence of property rights. So if we were to look at the, the lay of the land uh, on First Nations uh, reserve areas today, what would we see in terms of those underlying property rights? There's leases, what other? Yeah, well, there are some. There are sort of quasi-property rights. There's very little uh, freehold or fee-simple land of the kind that is the main the main property right uh, off-reserve in Canada. 
Uh, fee simple does exist in a few special cases like on the Nishka Reserve, uh, but um, it, it's pretty marginal. So there are three types of existing property rights. One is customary rights, which are widespread, but nobody really knows how widespread. Nobody keeps a, a, a complete record of them. But these are just uh, based on occupation of land, uh, often for generations by families who may have houses or may have farmed it. But uh, it's never been approved in any formal way by band council or the minister. It's not enforceable in court. Uh, it may be recorded. Some bands uh, keep registries of land, but uh, if it hasn't ever been legally approved, it's not enforceable in court. Nonetheless, it, there's a lot of it, and many people's lives are based on it. Uh, second form is the certificate of possession, which is uh, formally approved by the band council and the minister. There are about 44,000 certificates of possession in operation now on reserves, so that's a lot. Uh, and some reserves are almost entirely certificated, like the First Nations, uh, Six Nations Reserve, close to, not that far from your university. And certificates are enforceable in court, so they are a pretty strong form of title. The main limitation on them is that they can only be sold to another member of the same band. So there's virtually no market for certificates of possession. So that means that um, if, you, if you're on a reserve where certificates are accepted, you can get one and uh, you can perhaps build a home on that piece of land and you might even be able to get a mortgage if you can get the band council or some other third party to guarantee the mortgage. But the home doesn't become a savings vehicle. It's a place to live and you can leave it to your heirs and that's good. But it's for most of us, the, the home is the best investment we'll ever make because your wealth grows in it as the price of housing increases. But that, that doesn't happen where there is no housing market. And then the third form of property right is the lease. And the Indian Act has several provisions that uh, under, underlie leasing arrangements. And certificates of possession can be leased. Uh, and that's the basis of the prosperity of the West Bank band in British Columbia, is leasing of certificated land by individuals. Uh, or the band can lease band land for major projects. And there's lots of examples of that in, um, in, in Canada. It could be to casinos or hotels for golf courses, shopping centers, industrial parks, or residential housing developments. Uh, the lease is uh, in some ways the strongest form of property because once it's signed, it's tradable in the market, can be sold. And so there is a, there is a resale market for leases. So they don't have the weakness of certificates of possession. However, the weakness of the lease is by definition, it's time limited. 39 years, 49 years, 99 years, whatever. It's not as strong in that sense as fee simple ownership. Um, the best guess is that uh, under good conditions, a 99 year lease might be worth about 80 to 90% of uh, the value of fee simple ownership, but conditions aren't always that good. Some leases are written only for 39 or 49 years and they are, are worth quite a bit less than the, uh, the fee simple value of the land would be. So anyway, these are the three existing forms of property rights on First Nations land. So the suggestion of our book is that the fee simple ownership should become a fourth option. Nobody would be forced to adopt it, but it ought to be possible for First Nations who want to, to have that chance. And just for some of the listeners who might be listening in, how, when you think about fee simple, how, how do you, you know, define that? Or what, how do, what's the kind of lay version of what you mean by that? Well, fee simple ownership, like uh, any form of ownership, is the right to use 
used the land, they had the right to exclude others from use of it and the right to dispose of it through sale or, or gift or lease or whatever. So it's a complete ownership uh, restricted only by laws of general application such as zoning laws or environmental laws, uh, nuisance laws and things like that. That's the normal form of ownership of land in the, in the rest of Canada. So. All the students I'm looking at, probably you're probably too young, most of you don't own your own home, but I suspect in most cases your parents own homes, and that would be fee simple ownership. And uh, so it hasn't been available to people on First Nations land up to this point, so we would like to make that as available as an option because it's a more flexible form of ownership. Uh, it's a better store of value, uh, it appreciates over time because you can have a resale market for it. Um, you can get a mortgage based on it, um, bands. You, you can build a home on a reserve if you have a customary right or a um, certificate of possession, but the bank won't give you a mortgage to do it unless some third party guarantees the mortgage because they can't seize the land because no outsider can own the land. But if a fee simple regime were introduced, a bank would be able to seize land for non-payment of a mortgage as it would for anybody else because under that regime, an outsider would be able to own land on an Indian reserve, which is presently impossible. All right, I'm going to turn it over to students for questions in a minute. But before I do that, let me just ask you to maybe state the essential elements of the reforms uh, that you and um, your co-authors are suggesting. Well, the first step would be for a, uh, to pass legislation, and that legislation is currently being drafted. It's called the First Nations Property Ownership Act. And at one time we were hopeful that it might be introduced by the end of 2012. Now I think probably early 2013 is more, more likely. But anyway, it, the government is working on it. Once the legislation was passed, that would make it possible for First Nations to opt into that regime. That would mean opting out of the Indian Act with respect to the various land provisions in the Indian Act, which is a big part of the Act, not the whole thing, but it's a big part of it. So First Nations could choose to come under the new legislation. If they did that, the first thing that would happen is that they would get a collective fee simple ownership to all of their reserve land, which at the present time is owned by the Crown and held for the use and benefit of the people who live on it. Um, this would make it possible for the, the First Nation as a collective entity to own the land on which it's lived. First Nations already do own some fee simple land collectively. Uh, for example, there was a piece in the news yesterday about the Musqueam Band in Vancouver that wants to do a uh, land development project on uh, what used to be University of British Columbia Trust land. Uh, the Musqueam Band owns that piece of land in fee simple because it was uh, given to it by the province as part of a land, land claim settlement. So there is some collective ownership, not a lot, but there is some al already collective ownership by First Nations of lands in fee simple. But this, this bill would allow a First Nation to own all its land in fee simple, not just sort of odd pieces that they have picked up along the way. So they could own all their reserve land in fee simple. That would mean they could do what they want with it without having to get ministerial approval. If they wanted to enter into a leasing agreement or a development agreement, they could do it on their own without having to uh, get it approved in Ottawa. And then finally, the, the legislation would also allow First Nation to create individual titles in Fee Simple. Again, this would be optional, they wouldn't have to, but they could. And I think those 10 or 12 First Nations that are interested in getting into this uh, do want to create individual titles, not for their, all of their land by any means, but for a part of it. 
mainly for housing purposes, uh, perhaps other purposes as time goes on. And so individuals could then own land on an Indian reserve and they could sell it to whoever. Now, there might not be a big resale market at first. I think people would, you know, would wonder, well, what is it like to be an outsider owning a piece of land on an Indian reserve? Well, the answer is it's kind of like if I decided to invest in real estate in Guelph, uh, I have to take my chances with the Guelph City Council, which can enact zoning bylaws and sets property tax mill rates and things like that. Well, First Nations government would have the same kind of powers, uh, local government powers. And as an outside owner, you'd have to deal with that government. So if the First Nations government can establish a reputation for competence and honesty, I think over time, external people would be willing to to invest in that land, and there's no legal barrier to it in any case. So we can't say how quickly the market would develop. It would depend to a considerable extent on the behavior of the First Nations governments as to whether their behavior encouraged uh, outsiders to, to buy in or not. Okay, let me ask the students to ask any questions that they might have. I just had a question about um, how you perceive the implications of uh, an incomplete adoption of the Ownership Act uh, in regards to the inconsistency and in income disparities that may arise across the different First Nations to participate or not. Well, if I understand your question correctly, uh, we, we believe, we don't know because nobody knows the future, but we believe that adoption of this act would uh, benefit wealth creation for First Nations who adopted it. We think that their land would become more valuable. Uh, they could deal with it more expeditiously. They could engage uh, at both as a collectivity with band land and as individuals with individual fee land. They could uh, engage in economic transactions more freely. So, you know, we think that this would lead to greater prosperity for the, uh, uh, for the bands who adopted. Um, we also hope there'd be a demonstration effect so that other First Nations seeing the positive results might might want to opt into the legislation also. Uh, it might in the short run produce some disparities between bands, you know, there, I mean they, those already exist uh, because some bands like West Bank uh, have been much more aggressive in using the opportunities that do exist under the Indian Act. These are somewhat limited but they do exist and uh, West Bank has been very aggressive in making use of those and consequently has a uh, you know, a high level of economic prosperity there, uh, at least for those who own the certificates of possession. Now, there is a kind of a disenfranchised group at West Bank that didn't have any certificates to lease. A lot would depend upon the initial distribution of titles. Uh, this would have to be, I haven't, I haven't seen the legislation it's still being drafted, but there will be a process for uh, uh, opting in. It'll have to be approved by the band in some kind of referendum. And I think that there will have to be an approved method for distributing land to make sure that it's not all grabbed by people who are politically influential within the First Nation, you know, that we don't want chief and council uh, grabbing all the valuable land for themselves. So uh, there would have to be some kind of more broadly approved distribution uh, at the outset. Then what happens after that? Well, then you get into the market and trades become possible. I answered your question. Yeah, you did. That was good. Thank you. Okay.
Um, I wanted to address the fact that some would view communal land and the right to private land ownership as being in direct contradiction of one another. If you believe this to be true, what is the reasoning behind your support of fee-simple ownership regimes over supporting the rights of those who wish to share in communal property? Well, we don't want to force anybody uh, to adopt individual property. Um, I would be opposed to that. Uh, something like that was done in the United States in the Dawes Act in the 19th century, and I think it turned out to be a, a big mistake. So uh, our proposal is only for those First Nations that want to adopt a regime of private property to make it possible for them to do so. Um, but I think it's important to recognize, and there is a historical chapter in our book, that um, prior to contact with, um, with Europeans coming to North America, uh, there was a wide variety of individual property rights among the native population. Most of the eastern part of North America was farmed, certainly the southeast and uh, Atlantic seaboard and uh, central part up into Ontario, southern Ontario and Quebec and the American Midwest and the American Southwest, uh, there was a highly developed agriculture in all these places. And uh, with that went forms of, uh, it's not fee simple ownership, which we understand, that's a British concept, but there were forms of family ownership of, uh, of farming fields. Uh, similarly, in the fishing peoples of the coast, there was, there was family and sometimes even individual ownership of choice fishing stations and spots, and shellfish beds and things like that. Uh, there were individually or family-owned trap lines once we get into the era of the fur trade in the northern forest. So the cultural traditions of First Nations people uh, include lots of forms of, uh, of individual and family property. It was not all just communal. The closest to a pure, pure communal model would be the, uh, uh, the buffalo hunting peoples of the prairies. And it's interesting that the reserves in the three prairie provinces have the smallest number of certificates of possession. I mean, it'd be almost none, very few. Uh, there is a, probably a cultural mismatch there. But uh, certificates of possession are very common in British Columbia, southern Ontario, and southern Quebec where there, the, the way of life was more sedentary and there was a tradition of family ownership of, of certain real estate assets. So anyway, uh, we think that there's a cultural, good cultural fit for private property for at least some First Nations. So we want to say that those who want to go that way ought to be able to go that way. We shouldn't. The trouble with the Indian Act is it imposes the communal model on everybody. Thank you. Um, so the next question is, if First Nations adopt fee-simple ownership, what, if any, implications could arise relating to environmental degradation, and how can we mitigate against or account for these um, potential environmental problems? Well, um, I don't know. Your question seems to imply that individually owned land is more... Uh, more likely to be environmentally degraded than communally owned land. I don't really think the evidence supports that. Uh, if you want to go back to the, uh, the famous parable of the tragedy of the commons, which I'm sure you've studied in your course, uh, there's a couple of different ways of getting out of that tragedy. One is through um, collective oversight that we might say government regulation, but another is to privatize the commons and let it be individually owned so that owners have incentives to manage the land to retain its uh, its benefit for the future because they'll they'll get the benefit. They're the owners. So I, I don't think there's any 
a reason to think that individual ownership is more likely to lead to environmental degradation than, than communal ownership. But in any case, uh, our proposal envisions the existence of a First Nation government. Um, this is a chief difference from the Dawes Act, where the Dawes Act didn't provide for tribes in the United States to uh, to continue with some form of tribal government. The, the whole plan of the Dawes Act was to get away from tribal government. But our proposal recognizes the existence of First Nations governments, and those governments would have a variety of environmental regulatory powers, uh, you know, including zoning and nuisance legislation and setting environmental standards. They would have all the same powers that um, local governments have now under provincial legislation. They'd have, they have the same kinds of, of, of powers. Now, if they chose not to exercise them, I suppose it's possible that there could be environmental degradation, but they, they would have the tools. Um, fee Simple would not, would not take the land out of the control of the First Nations government. Uh, individuals could have ownership just as I own my house in Calgary, but that doesn't mean I can do whatever I want with my land. And you know, there's a huge set of Calgary zoning and environmental nuisance legislation or bylaws which govern what I do with my land. Uh, and the same would be true on a First Nation. So individuals might own it, but they would still be subject to whatever rules uh, their their local government made. And there would be the uh, First Nations would not be tossed uh, into this on their own. The First Nations Tax Commission would would be there to help them. The First Nations Tax Commission has been there now for, what, 25 years? To And it helps uh, the roughly 130 First Nations that have adopted some form of property tax. Uh, at the present time, property tax is being levied on leaseholds, which are mostly owned by people who are not members of the band. But in the future, property tax will also be applied to freeholds if freeholds are created. And so the First Nations Tax Commission will be creating, like they've created model uh, tax codes. So they'll be able to create model um, local bylaws for various purposes that uh, would be required once you get into the era of, of freehold ownership. So in 2010, the Assembly of First Nations spoke against the Property Ownership Act due to enforcement of fee simple title and its impact on sacred responsibilities held by bands. In your opinion, what is the state's role in protecting against infringements on these rights? Well, the opposition... Uh, um let me make one statement and then come back to the last part of your question. I'm not sure I totally understood it, but I do want to make one statement about this. Uh, under the current regime, the resources of the band, uh, including land and resources connected to the land, like uh, timber or subsurface things like gravel or minerals or oil and gas, um, these are largely at the disposal of chief and council. It's chief and council that have to approve any certificates of possession. It's chief and council who can confiscate uh, customary holdings. It's chief and council who make all the decisions about banned land. Um, it's not surprising to me that uh, the Assembly of First Nations, which is an organization of chiefs, would be um, would be opposed to a democratizing measure. Creating private property is something that benefits individuals and. Uh, lessens the power of chief and council over the lives of individuals uh, by allowing them to own their own property. So it doesn't really surprise me that the AFN would be would be skeptical about this. It's kind of in their self-interest to defend uh, the status quo. 
Now, what, what was the, you, you said at the very end of your question, I didn't quite catch that. Um, I said that I was asking what this, what should be the state's role in protecting against infringement on these rights, um, these sacred responsibilities. Uh, what should be the state's role in protecting infringement against the responsibility of the First Nation government or infringement on the rights of individuals? On the First Nation bans. Yeah, well, the... Um, you know, First Nations have all kinds of rights now. They're entrenched in the Constitution uh, because of Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982. Uh, Aboriginal and treaty rights are considered to have constitutional status. They can't be unilaterally uh, um, uh, abrogated. And we have the court system to interpret and enforce them. So First Nations governments have all kinds of protection right now. Um, as constitutionalized entities. Um, it's actually First Nations individuals who, uh, in my opinion, <laughs> need more protection. Uh, I think their governments have lots. So you said that it's pretty important that they adopted or opt in, but with what was said in the yes. last bit, how do you think that the people in the AFN, will they voluntarily accept it still or may it need to be imposed? Well, the... Uh, the opting in would require a band council resolution and uh, also some kind of referendum vote, whether it was done through a meeting or a mail ballot, but but some kind of public approval. So if the leadership of a uh, First Nation is opposed to doing this, it's not going to happen. So the legislation is completely optional. And um, right now, something like 10 or 12 First Nations have expressed interest uh, in it, they've passed already passed band council resolutions expressing an interest in it and supporting the concept. So that's you know ten or twelve out of six hundred and thirty. So most are not yet uh, um, ready to go forward. Uh, some others have said they're interested, but not you know not not quite there yet. But we're talking about a small minority, uh, most of whom are in British Columbia. Um, not all, but most. And so this will be a, a very small and gradual thing, which I, which I actually think is right. Uh, you know, I don't believe in large-scale experimentation with, uh, with people's lives if we can avoid it. I, I believe in slow and incremental change, a kind of an experimental approach to, to see what works and what doesn't. So right now, this is a proposal. It's, you know, it's a brainwave, <laughs> although it's based uh, on a lot of experience with property rights around the world. But it is, at the present, just an abstract proposal. So um, we make it optional. Uh, a few bands get into it. And uh, if it's not working, they can terminate it. Um, the rest of us will get a chance to see if it actually works in practice. We, we think, the authors think it will. but. Uh, you know, I've seen an awful lot of abstract proposals which don't work out the way they were intended. So uh, that's why I favor, a, you know, a kind of a gradual and incremental approach to reform. Many of the ideas that are in your proposal, the, the hope for consequences, seem to resonate with um, ideas and objectives of some recent reforms like uh, the uh, First Nations Land Management Act. And when I, when I hear you speak and when I, when I read the book, I, I don't view you as thinking that these are in conflict. Uh, is, uh, your proposal seems to be thought of as is, is offering another option within the portfolio of options for First Nations 
Um, is that correct, or, or is there? Yes. Oh, yeah, abs absolutely. There are um, there are ways already for First Nations to uh, capitalize on their assets in land and natural resources. Um, leaseholds, as I mentioned, are are widely used. Uh, entering the First Nations Land Management Act uh, makes the process more efficient. Once your own local land code is approved, then you don't have to keep going back to the department to, for approval of everything. So that's um, you know that's a good idea. Uh, other possibilities are self-government agreements, uh, as West Bank has. Again, you can get out of the ministerial oversight that way. Um, negotiating a modern-day treaty. You know, there's about 200 uh, First Nations in British Columbia that have never signed treaties. And um, so the Sawasan uh, Nation, which has signed a treaty, has a provision in there for uh, fee simple property. They now, through their treaty, they now own their land in fee simple. And uh, the treaty allows them to create individual titles if they wish. So Sawasan so has achieved through treaty pretty much what we are proposing in this, in this new piece of legislation. Um, so there are many ways to skin the cat, and, and we're not opposed to any of them. And I would suspect that uh, some of the First Nations, which are most advanced, would uh, you know might not be interested in fee simple because they may think they're doing okay with uh, certificates of possession or leaseholds. So West Bank is not interested right now. Um, Squamish is another band in Vancouver that's had an aggressive uh, property development program. I don't think they're they would um, switch over to fee simple because they got all kinds of plans drawn up on the basis of uh, of leasehold. So uh, this will fit the needs, we think, of, of some. There clearly are some interested in it. I'll give you a, a concrete example of how it would be beneficial in the short term. The big proponent of this is Manny Jules, former chief of the Kamloops Band, um, now chief of the First Nations Tax Commission. And uh, basically what happened to uh, produce this book is that, is that Manny and I joined forces uh, Andre Ledresse is an economist who does all the research for Manny, and Chris Alcantara is a former grad student of mine. Um, and so we all got together on a common project. A lot of the thinking in this really comes from Manny, and what the rest of us have done is to put it into you know more of an academic form. But uh, on the Kamloops Reserve, there's already a large real estate development of about, oh, I think it's up to about 2,000 homes. I mean, it's not finished yet. So... I'm not sure how big it will be when it's completed, but there are a large number of uh, very nice middle-class homes there, uh, which are for sale in the real estate market, but they're based on 99-year leases. And um, Manny believes that if this legislation is passed, the, the band could then offer the leaseholders the right to buy the fee. And uh, their best guess is comparing it to, re to real estate values in... Uh, comparable areas of Kamloops, that uh, leaseholders would probably pay another, um, oh, like another 10% or so, 10 or 15% of what they paid for the lease. They would pay that extra amount in order to have the certainty of, uh, of fee simple ownership. And that would, that would add up to millions of dollars that would go straight into the treasury of the band that they could then use for 
you know, whatever purpose they want, possibly building uh, lower cost housing for their own people. These, these middle class homes are mostly occupied by non-Indians, although in fact there are some members of the band or other bands who have bought them as well. They're, they're very nice places to live. So uh, Kamloops has a concrete incentive to, uh, to do this. They can see the immediate short-term profit of converting leaseholds to, to fee simple ownership. So it, they think it will work for them, but if other bands uh, don't think it will work for them, well, then they don't, then, then they don't get into it. I forgot what the question was. I rambled on so long. I'm not sure what question I ended up answering, but anyway. Hi there, Mr. Flanagan. I, uh, I was actually just wondering what uh, what you thought about the possibilities of of this seeming as as though it. It's it's just one step closer to uh, to assimilating the the First Nations population into into Western society and uh, if can, considering that maybe this this is part of the reason that uh, that they are well the Assembly of First Nations in particular so so opposed to this issue uh, d despite the fact that possible individual First Nations are uh, are quite receptive to it. Well, assimilation is an emotional word. Nobody likes to use it, but. Uh... Um, you know, First Nations people are, you know, they are already uh, speaking English or French, mostly English, some French. Uh, they, um, they're eating the same foods uh, as we do, uh, which is too bad, actually, uh, since we eat a lot of junk, uh, they'd be better off with the uh, diet of moose and wild rice, but it's not really feasible anymore for large numbers of people. Um, they attend our schools and our universities. They vote in our elections. Uh, they have jobs, um, either working for employers or they're self-employed. I mean, they've already adopted 99% uh, of uh, the practices of Western civilization. Um, Fee simple ownership would allow them to make better use of their assets within that context. So that's how I see it. I, you know, you go around talking about assimilation, everybody gets their back up. But I mean, you know, what what has happened? Uh, First Nations people are Canadian. They're Canadian citizens. Their lives are not that much different from the rest of Canadians, except that for many of them, their lives are not are not prosperous, and they're you know they have bad housing and low incomes and and poor health. Uh, so if, if a legal change can help them to achieve better, better lives for themselves, I'm all for it. Tom, I think we're about coming to an end. I didn't know if there was any kind of last thoughts that you wanted to, to leave us with. Well, I feel privileged to address an economics class. I'm, I'm not an economist, but uh, Andre Ledresse, one of the collaborators in the book, is in fact uh, has a PhD in economics from UBC and makes his living as a as a professional economist as runs a consulting firm. So uh, even though I'm only a political scientist, there is uh, I think a professional economics economic views represented in the book. So it's great to talk to uh, to an economics class, and uh, you know that's the kind of audience that we're in writing the book. We're looking for this kind of audience. Uh, Politicians aren't going to pass legislation because of the book. That comes about through other processes. But it's also important to have a, a more uh, a discussion at a more intellectual level of the basic concepts. And so I'm very grateful that you'd invite me to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye then.
You've been listening to Fair Talk with Brady Deaton Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. Thanks for joining us.